At just 25 years old, Chip Conley founded a company that would make him a legend in the hospitality industry. I started a boutique hotel company in the mid-1980s called Joie de Vivre. Joie de Vivre means joy of life in French. And I loved it. And I loved the fact that the mission statement of the company was also the name of the company, to create joy for people. That company ended up growing quickly over the next couple decades as Chip oversaw its growth as CEO. We grew to 52 boutique hotels around California, most of them in Northern California, most of them in the Bay Area. But during the Great Recession, things became challenging. It was a really hard time. We were launching launching or relaunching 15 hotels in 21 months. I got to the other side of it. I, at age 50, was no longer running the company. I was the executive chair of Joie de Vivre, ultimately what is now known as JDV, a Hyatt brand. And I didn't know what was next. After a couple of years, Chip ended up taking a role at a company that would end up becoming the most valuable in the entire hospitality industry. I was asked by the three young founders of Airbnb, a business that most of us had never heard of, but it was growing fast. The Airbnb founders wanted Chip's help in growing the company, and so they brought him on board as their head of global hospitality and strategy, a role that he held for four years and then spent three and a half more years beyond that in a part-time strategic advisory role. One day, while Chip was running along the beach in Mexico, he had an epiphany. I had a Baja Aha, which is why don't we have midlife wisdom schools? That led to him co-founding the Modern Elder Academy and writing his latest book, Learning to Love Midlife. In this episode, we're going to get into all of this. There's so many takeaways for everyone, but especially those who are providing hospitality. 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 Hospitality brings people together. This is Hospitality Daily, the show that helps you stay informed and inspired each day by the most interesting people in hospitality. My name is Josiah McKenzie, and my goal is to help you reconnect with why you work in this industry and get fired up to go out there, delight others, and reach your goals. Let's get started. One of the things that you talk about is this notion of rest or recreation, or you call it recreation or regeneration. And it feels this is both very important for individuals, but even for hospitality providers. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about this rest or recreation distinction or these concepts and what comes to mind for you on this. You know, being in the hospitality business is not a, unless you're purely doing events. If you're doing events, then it's a hundred yard dash. But if you're in the hospitality business, restaurants, spas, hotels, providing services. It is a marathon. It is easy to get burned out over time. It's also easy to get burned out doing a hundred yard dash, but usually when you're doing an event, you're doing your event and then you have downtime. Whereas if you operate as if it's a hundred yard dash, but you're running a marathon, it won't go very well for you. And so I have long believed that sabbaticals were valuable. Back in the day when I was running Joie de Vivre, we had a very novel thing where if you're a salaried employee, Every after three years of employment, full-time, you got a one-month paid sabbatical. Now, that was pretty wild back then, a long time ago. But it, what it did was it helped people to, to refuel themselves. And we're in a very empathetic business. And being able to be in a space where you didn't have to be taking care of people for a month was very valuable. It also allowed your brain, the recreation, you know, how do you recreate your brain? How do you spend some time looking at things from a different perspective? So I'm a big believer in that in any industry, but I think hospitality is probably where it's most needed. And so what does that mean? It means how do you put your phone away? How do you create boundaries? How do you, 
once a quarter, maybe you do a three-day weekend and you're offline for three days. Can you have a message saying, I'm not available this weekend? And I think those things are essential and it's easy to get caught up in the 24-7 nature of hospitality and to get burned out quickly. Those boundaries are critical. Let's talk a little bit more about health. You mentioned earlier there's opportunities, interesting things happening in longevity travel. I'm interested in what you think hospitality providers might be able to do to support people on their journey to building long-term health. Well, I think there's the obvious things, which are like, do you have a gym and how good is your gym? And do you have a walking or running map at your hotel that allows people to know where to go and staff favorites of things to see along the way? I mean, I think that's huge. I think in certain environments, having bikes that you can rent or take out while you're there is certainly valuable. But I think a lot of it comes down to also diet and sleep. So there's personal wellness and there's social wellness. On the personal wellness side, everything I just talked about was really exercise. But then there's sleep and there's diet. And gosh, when it comes to sleep hygiene, there's so many variables there and so many ways that hotels can do a better job of addressing that, whether it's having white noise machines available for people. The good news is you don't need a lot of the gadgets anymore because a lot of the gadgets are on people's phones. And sleep's the most essential. It's the base of the Maslow pyramid. If someone's not having a good night's sleep, then it doesn't matter what you're doing up higher up on the pyramid. That's essential. And then the diet, having a variety of food options, if not on the premises within close proximity, that's pretty essential too. But I think the thing that's missed a lot when it comes to wellness in the hospitality industry is not just the personal wellness side, but the social wellness side. How do I feel as a result of making this trip more connected? How do I have that belong anywhere experience? How do I go to MEA, the Modern Elder Academy, a midlife wisdom school, and feel so deeply connected to the 24 people I'm in my workshop with, such that these are my new best friends? How do I go to a boutique hotel in a neighborhood and I'm hanging out in the bar and I'm really feeling the local flavor? And I'm getting to talk to somebody who lives nearby. I mean, generally speaking, most hotels, especially convention hotels, feel like fortresses, very cut off from the local community. And I'm not saying that's, I mean, it's hard to, how you do it differently. You know, the ones who can figure it out are going to do it successfully because I don't think people necessarily want to be so cut off from that local community and from that heartbeat of the city. Part of the reason that Airbnb does so well, there are really two reasons, and it varied from year to year. What was the first choice versus second choice? A lot of people chose Airbnb because it was more space, less money, meaning apartment for less money. That's the obvious one. But the one that was less obvious and sometimes was the first choice of why people actually used Airbnb was because they wanted to live like a local. And that's become sort of like language that all the hotel industry tries to talk about right now. But back in the day when we discovered that live like a local was really the language that people were using in our focus groups, and we were able to help people do that because you're in a community, in a neighborhood where there's neighborhood restaurants, then it really meant we needed to help our hosts look at how are they helping people to feel like a local by being there. Boutique hotels, I think, do this well, especially if they have a restaurant or bar that is popular with people outside just the hotel guests. And they're usually maybe in locations in the city that are not segregated, like in a convention or downtown market. But I think that social wellness piece, which is, I think, as important as the personal wellness piece, is something that hotels need to think about as well. I appreciate you touching on social wellness because there's all the opportunities we have within the hospitality business that you outlined, but there's definitely equivalent opportunities on a personal level. In the book, you share research where 
I think it was half of our social network on average tends to get replaced every seven years. Yeah. So building friendships and relationships needs to be a constant thing. It's not just you can, you know, we built these friendships when we were this age or stage and then we yeah. ride that. It needs to be a constant thing. You also say that in general, men don't do a great job with this, True. connecting as well as other women. And I'm curious, I mean, maybe just to make this personal, like what are some things that we can do? What can I do to kind of get rid of this notion of going it along and getting better at developing friendships? Yeah, it's a couple of things. Uh, women, when they're girls, learn to be more vulnerable and to tell secrets and talk about things that sometimes feel very sensitive. Men, boys don't learn that as much. But also as we move into our 20s, 30s, and 40s, men put on the blinders a little bit more. Women have to do it too. I mean, both men and women have very full schedules. And actually, frankly, women have more roles and identities that they're trying to satisfy than men do. But a lot of men in their 20s, 30s, and 40s let their friendships atrophy. You had your friends from college or maybe from graduate school or maybe from high school, and you sort of lost track with them. And then you didn't necessarily bring in the new breed of people who are going to be your friends, except for maybe at work. And then at work, it was sort of like, oh, well, let's go for a drink after work. And that was fine. But sometimes that was like, okay, well, I can't really talk about what's going on for me with workmates when it comes to my home life or my spiritual life or my the fact I want to change my job. I mean, there's we end up in a place where we feel pretty disconnected. And um, part of the reason why we have a loneliness epidemic is because we used to have a social structure in society with the Kiwanis Club or the PTA or our church. And there was these social infrastructure that brought us together with people on a regular basis. And those kinds of programs, those kinds of social infrastructure have faded to some degree. It doesn't mean that they're not still around. It's just not they're, they're not as powerful as they used to be. And we are online more and therefore we aren't having in-person gatherings as much. And for all those reasons, you can actually feel quite socially isolated, even post-COVID. And I think COVID got us sort of comfortable hanging out in our home alone. And so this is a big deal. The number one variable for someone who's living a happy and healthy life in their 80s and 90s, the number one variable is how invested they were in their social relationships in their 50s. So this is not something you should put off till you're 80. And it's something you should start investing back in in your 30s and 40s. And, and by your 50s, if you're not invested in trying to keep friendships and really realizing that friendships are a practice you have to work at, then you may have atrophy in that muscle. And if that's the case, you don't know how to actually fix it. And this is one of the things we specialize in MEA is the social wellness piece. I'd like to transition to talking to MEA, which is pretty easy because I feel like there are so many great concepts from learning to love midlife that it seems you have built into yeah. MEA. So just two kind of things maybe we could use as a bridge into talking about MEA. One of them is you talk about this notion of I am who I serve. It's about impact. Mm -hmm. It's about driving change. And you also talk about this notion of being a conduit. Versus a, I think you mentioned like a can, can do, do it. it. Yeah. And in your work with Christine and Jeff in launching MEA, I wonder maybe we make this personal, you know, for you, Chip, yeah. what has kind of those two notions looked like in practice as you have thought about and then launched MEA and then now you're in the process of expanding MEA? I mean, I, back to the can do it, conduit thing, there's a chapter in the book where I talk about the hero's journey, which is a part of our program. And I was talking about my own version, my own experience with it. And when I was CEO of Joie de Vivre, I gave away 3,500 copies of 
the little engine that could at Christmas time one year, because I love that book. It's the, I think I can, I think I can, I can, I think I can, the little train that's pressed into service to take the animals over the hill and can do, can do it, can do it. Yeah. Can do it attitude or can do attitude. Can do attitude was the number one variable for loyalty for our customers. So how we scored on can do attitude was really important. So this book felt important to me. But I, what I realize now is that that book was a manifestation of how I saw myself. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And I love that. And it also meant that I had a tendency in my life, and I still do, to try to be the hero who feels like they can do anything. And often that means I don't empower other people. It means I'm running ahead. There's a famous African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I'm good at fast going alone. Um, it doesn't mean I don't work with other people. I do. It just means like I tend to be like five steps ahead, not because I'm smart, but because I'm just sort of resilient and obsessive. And so what that meant for me was I realized, ah, I end up in this cycle where I become the can-do-it hero and then I I feel like I'm doing it alone and then I at least resentment. And that's happened with me and my co-founders, Jeff and Christine, on multiple occasions. We get along great, but I mean, yes, I can see the pattern. Being able to see the pattern of your life is something you get better at in midlife. And that's a form of wisdom. And so what I had to really realize is like, one of the things I'm really good at is being the conduit, not just the can-do-it. I am pretty good at being able to see things and imagine creative ideas and have them come through me. But I'm not able to do that very well when I'm so stretched and when I'm so busy and when I'm being the can-do-it hero. So what I've tried to do is shift so that I have enough really capable people around me so that I can be the popcorn machine saying, oh, here's a new idea. Here's a new idea. Here's a new idea. I can come up with the ideas and then let other people run with them and then really empower them to take the idea and make it their own going forward. That's a shift in my leadership style that's still in process. I mean, I can't say I'm perfect at this yet. I'll never be perfect, but I'm certainly more cognizant of the fact that um, learning how to be the populator of ideas and then let other people take those ideas and help me support them in that, how I serve them in being a servant leader is a big part of how I see my role today. We'll be back after a quick break. Are you enjoying this conversation? If so, I invite you to text this episode to a friend or colleague as well. Not only will you let them know that you're thinking about them, but you'll help them as well. One more thing, I'm having a lot of fun right now sharing videos and photos from the stories on the show. So if you'd like to see those or watch along, open up Instagram and YouTube now and follow Hospitality Daily so we can stay in touch. All right, let's get back to the conversation. So there's a mindset there, but there's also an enabling factor that you talk about in the book of time affluence. So I encourage people to read about your thinking there because it seems like you need both of those factors to operate in this way. Yes. And I'll link in the show notes where people can learn more about MEA if they're unfamiliar with it. But I wonder if you could maybe tell me about the MEA ranch opening in New Mexico in just a few months, I understand. Yeah. I'm curious what you do there that you're most excited about. Because I had a listener ask me before this, you know, they were curious what you would have done differently if you were starting all over. But maybe let's talk about the new MEA ranch, if that sounds good, and what you're excited about the design of that. Yeah, let me answer that question first. If I would to do it all over again, the first campus of MEA was basically emerged out of me running on the beach and having this idea, like we should have a midlife wisdom school and I have a home on the beach. So it's like, and it was very rural part of Mexico. So it's like, oh, let's just 
build around ourselves. If I could do it over again, I probably would have said like, well, let's do this in the US first and let's figure out and create proof of concept in the US. And Santa Fe might have been my first choice in the US. And so the fact that our second campus and the first one in the US is in Santa Fe is not a surprise. And we chose Santa Fe for a lot of reasons. We don't want to be a commuter school. So when I say we're a school, what does that mean? You come and you spend a five-night program, usually around one of three or four key themes that's cultivating purpose, navigating transitions, owning wisdom, and figuring out what is your wisdom and how are you gifting that to the world? And then how do you reframe your relationship with aging as well? So all of that is part of it. And the longevity travel piece is part of that too, is how do you create, consciously curate your life so you're going to live a lot longer? In so doing, Santa Fe felt good because I didn't want us to be in Ojai for LA or Sonoma for San Francisco or Hudson Valley for New York. Because if you don't change your habitat, it's hard to change your habits. And so we wanted people to come to a place that feels like they're making a pilgrimage to come to it. And Santa Fe is that kind of place. It's not on the beaten path. And when you get there, it feels very foreign. Am I in the United States? Like New Mexico feels very foreign and Santa Fe in particular, and has a lot of history. It's also a place that has a long history of artists and creators and people seeking to come to. And so for all those reasons, we decided to sort of set up shop in the U.S. there. And we have three pieces of property there. One is this 2,600-acre ranch, which opens in April with two retreat centers. A second one is on Museum Hill next to St. John's College, 12 and a half acre Catholic seminary and Richard Center that is a historic property. And then the third property is where we're going to do a residential community in town. And so long story short is I'm very excited about this because there's all these horses. So we have modern elder horses. We have horses that are sort of retirement age, that were performance horses that are actually going to be there. And you're going to be able to do equine assisted learning, horseback riding, and you know, with four square miles of land. We have so many hiking trails and biking trails and just being in nature in New Mexico is quite beautiful. So yeah, it's a big deal. I'm proud of the fact that we are as ambitious as we are because I do believe that the category of midlife wisdom schools, which sort of fall under the banner of transformational travel and maybe even wellness travel, I think we're a category that is going to be growing over the next 10 years. And I'm someone who looks for categories. I'm a zeitgeist surfer. I was one of the first boutique hoteliers. I joined Airbnb when nobody had heard of them. So I do believe that I have some ability that, to like see something on the horizon and then make it work. This is the most complicated of those three, I will say, though. Boutique hotels were easier to do, and Airbnb was not easy. But I'd say creating something that is a combination school... The school piece actually adds some complexity because you have a curriculum. So we're not just a hospitality experience. We're a transformational educational experience. And I love that. And we do it really well. And it makes it a little bit more complicated. The horses sound amazing. And I remember you talking about, I think you had an 87-year-old guest that started surfing for the first time. Yes. In kind of talking with people who have gone through the program and, you know, reading your website, it really stands out how many activities and experiential ways that you're allowing people to try new things that maybe they thought they couldn't. You know, experiential travel and experiential education is essential because, you know, no one wants to be in a classroom, like having PowerPoints, feeding them stuff. So we don't do any of that. It's all based upon the idea of creating a crucible for life-changing conversations and for experiences that allow you to become a beginner again, because that is one of the most important variables for people who live long, healthy lives is being curious and open to new experiences. So yes, the program is quite unusual for a retreat center program in the sense of how experiential it is. And 
in Baja, of course, surfing will be the, one of the experiential activities, whereas in Santa Fe, horseback riding or equine-assisted learning is one of them. But there's multiple things that we do in both locations. It's very connected to the sense of place. And if I go through the website, you have such an incredible diversity of world-class teachers of all different backgrounds and persuasions. How do you think about programming that mix of people? Well, I, you know, I think about the, who are the people I'd like to learn from <laughs> and whether that's Esther Perel or Dan Butner from Blue Zones or Michael Franti, the musician. Yeah. And so we, we invite them and Richard Rohr, who's teaching for us in a famous Christian mystic. We'll start with that. It's like, you know, who are some really interesting people, but we have a core program that's unrelated to who the faculty is. And we have 16 different facilitators who have been trained in that and those folks are deeply embedded in the idea of evolving our curriculum to help people in midlife to reimagine and repurpose themselves. And so we work quite closely with Harvard, Stanford, Yale, and UC Berkeley with professors from those places as well. So it is a combination. We didn't want to do sort of one size fits all where there's some retreat centers where they have one program and you go and you do that one program. It's like, oh, okay, I did it. Great. We wanted to have something that would encourage people to come once or even twice a year and it's not an inexpensive program, even though we do have financial aid. And so for someone to come twice a year and to two different programs and spend, you know, it's $6,000 single for a five-night experience, that's $12,000 a year. That's a lot of money for someone to spend with us. But we have dozens, maybe even hundreds of people who fit that profile who actually come more than once a year. And then we also have online programs too, because during COVID, <laughs> that was a necessity. And then we also have regenerative residential communities in Baja and soon in Santa Fe. Very exciting. I'll include links in the show notes where people can learn more, encourage people to check it out. Chip, before we go, I'm wondering kind of what maybe a practical thing we can leave with people. Some things that stood out for me from reading the book were kind of your wisdom journal that you had created yeah, and also yeah. this notion of awe walks. I don't know if you want to speak to either of those or anything else on your mind. What's a practice that we might use to kind of live out some of the principles that you write about? Let's do both of them briefly. Awe walk is really simple. It's we need more awe, awe in our life, A-W-E. And Often we find that awe in nature. And so one of the things that I like to do is I do something called spying on the divine. And I take my my dog, Jamie, out and we go for a long walk in places that I have never walked before. And I like to go from a place of like a childhood sense of awe, like, what am I going to see? And the question I like to ask before we go on those walks is, you know, nature, what do you have to teach me today? An awe walk helps to, it's one of those rejuvenating activities we talked about earlier. And then the idea of the Wisdom Journal came to me when I was 28. At that point, I was a two, I'd been running my company for two years in Joie de Vivre, and I was an idiot. <laughs> I mean, 28-year-old CEO of a boutique hotel company, like, what, like uh, what did I know? And then we had the Loma Prieta earthquake here in San Francisco, and, and bottom line was like, there was no hotel business for six months, and I was running out of cash. And so one day on a Friday, I, I came home and I took an old journal and I wrote on the cover of the journal, my wisdom book. And I started a process where a practice whereby each weekend I would sit down and make a list of bullet points of what I'd learned that week. Sometimes just to make myself feel better, like, okay, that was a painful lesson I just learned. How is it going to serve me in the future? And every weekend I would have this practice. It might be four or six or eight bullet points of what I'd learned that week, along with how it will serve me. And so I've been doing that for 35 years. Now I don't do it every weekend anymore, but I do it. I do it frequently and it's really helpful because the process of actually metabolizing your experience is the way you build your wisdom. Now, what I've learned also, last thought, is you could do this with teams. 
once a quarter, you can sit down with your leadership team and say, okay, next week's leadership team meeting, each person is going to come to the meeting and say, hey, here's my biggest lesson of the quarter. Here's how it's going to serve me in the future. And everybody shares that. Maybe there's eight or 10 of you to share that. And then as a group, you say, what was our biggest team lesson for the quarter? What did we learn as a team? And how's it going to serve us? That is one of the wisdom management practices that we offer at MEA because we have groups who come to MEA, private groups, everybody from YPO to companies who want to come and learn. Like, how can we be a wiser company? How can we create wiser leaders? So that's an example of one of those practices. I love it. Chip, thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us today. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for spreading the love around hospitality. Great hospitality providers know that every touchpoint matters a lot, so they spend a lot of time making sure that each interaction better serves their guests and makes life easier for their teams. If you'd like to operate this way, I suggest you check out Sojourn. They've built a reputation as the market leader in helping hotels and resorts earn direct bookings through digital advertising over the years. And more recently, they've expanded into offering a complete suite of guest experience solutions, including an AI smart concierge, reputation manager, and guest marketing suite. I've been working with Sojourn for years now, and everything from the way their technology is built to the talented experts they have on staff makes it no surprise that when I talk with people about technology, Sojourn comes up again and again. Hospitality providers love them. If you'd like to learn more about how Sojourn can help you better engage your guests and drive more profitable direct bookings, visit Sojourn.com. That's S-O-J-E-R-N.com. Before we go, I want to let you know about a few more things. First, if you haven't done so already, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite app to stay inspired each day by actionable insights from the most interesting people in hospitality. Second, I've started sharing videos and photos from the stories on this show on Instagram and YouTube, so if you'd like to see those or watch along, I encourage you to follow Hospitality Daily there so we can stay in touch. Third, if you'd like to listen to more conversations like the one you just heard, visit this podcast website at podcast.hospitalitydaily.com. I've spent a lot of time building out this website because I want to make it really easy for you to listen to the topics and guests that you are interested in, whether that's culture and leadership or operations or technology or something else. Browse and search the entire library of more than 400 episodes for some of the top leaders and innovators in hospitality at podcast.hospitalitydaily.com. Dot com to get ideas for delighting the people around you and reaching your business and career goals. I produce this podcast each day and give it away for free because I want us all to learn and grow together. If you enjoyed today's episode, I just have one favor to ask. Please take a moment to text or email this episode to a friend or colleague who might appreciate it as well. They'll be grateful to hear from you and what we covered in the show can help them as I hope it helped you today. Thanks for listening and I'll see you here tomorrow. 